0: Christ Church, New Malden, 29th of September 2019, 9.30 service. Ruth Henson speaking in the series, Jesus Shows God's Covenant Love, Forgiving Wickedness, Rebellion and Sin. So today, we've reached the end of our series on how Jesus displayed God's covenant love throughout his ministry. So far, we've seen how Jesus was compassionate, gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness and this morning we're focusing on the phrase forgiving wickedness rebellion and sin these adjectives and phrases are taken from verses from exodus 34 which are then requoted several times throughout the old testament in that chapter moses receives the ten commandments for a second time having broken the first set of tablets in his anger when he came down from Mount Sinai and found the Israelites worshipping an idol of a golden calf. Moses chisels out two fresh stone tablets, goes back up the mountain early in the morning, and we then read, Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord and he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents, to the third and fourth generation. It's an example of one of those passages where we might wish it stopped halfway through. Did we really need verse 7 as well? Verse 6 did such a good job of reminding us how awesome God is. Compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Why didn't it just stop there, before all the mentions of wickedness, rebellion and sin, let alone the scary-sounding stuff about generations of children being punished for their ancestors' sins? Yikes. But it's verse 7 that our focus this morning is taken from, so we better roll our sleeves up and get to grips with it, before we can see how Jesus goes on to demonstrate this. The verse starts positively enough, describing God as maintaining love to thousands. This love which is being mentioned is the covenant love which we've been focusing on in this series. A covenant was usually a formal and solemn agreement between two parties. But with God, it is a love-inspired and love-filled commitment to an everlasting relationship with his people. And the word translated here as maintaining is actually much stronger than that. Protecting or guarding would be a better translation. The Lord is like a sentry on guard. He wants to ensure you receive his love, but not just you. The verse says maintaining love to thousands, but that is shorthand for the fact that this love is not just for a few of God's favorites, it's available to everyone. It's limitless. But then we come to the phrase in the title of our talk this morning forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Sometimes people think that forgiveness was a new idea brought in by Jesus during his ministry, in contrast to the grumpiness and anger of a vengeful God in the Old Testament. But the words forgive, Forgiving and forgiveness are used 658 times in the Old Testament before the birth of Jesus. Forgiveness is an intrinsic theme of the Bible from cover to cover. The Hebrew word translated here as forgiving literally means to lift up, to carry or to take away. That couldn't be a much more obvious signpost to Jesus, who at his crucifixion lifted up our sins along with the cross, carried them to Calvary, and then took them far away. As Psalm 103 foretells, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. And as Jesus' cousin John says when he first sees him, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. More about that later. What is it that Exodus 34 verse 7 says that God forgives? Wickedness? rebellion and sin. These are the three most common words in the Hebrew scriptures to describe the extent of humanity's depravity and brokenness. The word translated as wickedness is an all encompassing term for any kind of wrongdoing or bad behavior. Anything from driving a mile or two faster than the speed limit to mass murder could be described by that term in Hebrew. The word translated as rebellion is a legal word used in the courtroom and literally means to break the law. It's a crime or violation. It's when we know precisely what God commands and expects but choose to do what we want instead. And the word translated as sin literally means to miss the mark. It didn't necessarily have a moral meaning in Moses's time but was rather a word picture for failing or messing up based on the imagery of an archer missing the target with his bow and arrow these words are all synonyms and together cover the whole scope of human wrongdoing it might seem a bit over the top that God lists these words as if he's really having a go at us and laying on the guilt trip. But actually, it's just the opposite. God is making the point that he forgives sins of all shapes and sizes. We like to play the sin rating game and discount our gossiping compared to someone else's murdering, but God takes all of our wrongdoing, law-breaking and missing of the mark seriously but amazingly is also ready and willing to forgive all of those misdemeanors, however large or small. This use of a trio of words to encompass the whole breadth of sin which God will forgive occurs in other parts of the Bible too. For example, in Psalm 51, where David famously pleads for God's forgiveness after committing adultery with Bathsheba, he says... Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. And the prophet Micah describes God like this. Who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. These verses show us just what God is like. He doesn't just forgive, he is forgiving. It's in his character In his DNA it's who he is the commentator Douglas Stewart writes he does not reluctantly forgive sins against himself and others he does so eagerly as a manifestation of his character God doesn't just forgive us because he feels he has to he doesn't sit there thinking well I suppose because Jesus went ahead and died for them I have to forgive them now no He forgives eagerly. He longs to forgive us. It's who he is. Everything in the story of the Bible points and builds to the cross, where God's character is on display for all to see, as Jesus is even able to cry out to God to forgive those who have nailed him to the tree, and then promises salvation to the criminal hanging on the neighbouring cross. It would be very tempting to leave Exodus 34 verse 7 there and just spend the rest of the talk looking at how Jesus demonstrated God's forgiving nature in his crucifixion after all we've covered the phrase quoted in the title of this talk so surely we could forget about that awkward bit at the end couldn't we but tricky though it might seem it does actually go hand in hand with God's forgiving nature and shows even more fully how and why the cross was the perfect fulfilment of covenant love. So let's bite the bullet and read on. The next phrase continues, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. This sentence is rather tough to translate accurately in English, but the point being made is that God, who is forgiving by nature, is also at the same time intrinsically just. So he can't let the guilty off the hook. He can't turn a blind eye to our wrongdoing. We might flinch when we read, he does not leave the guilty unpunished, but really God's justice is a good thing. God's end goal is a world with no evil. God's agenda is a world set free from injustice. God's justice isn't about retribution or payback or vendetta. It's about healing and renewal of the world. I read the book, God Has a Name, by John Mark Comer in preparation for this talk. It's a whole book on these two verses from Exodus 34, and I definitely recommend it. This is what Comer says about God's justice. Evil is the byproduct of sin And Yahweh is after a world with no evil. No garment workers in Bangladesh slaving 12 hours a day, seven days a week in dangerous conditions for barely enough money to survive, all so we can buy a t-shirt for five bucks. No cruel dictators driving an economy into the ground with war, ethnic cleansing, and rampant corruption. No abuse, no shootings in elementary schools, no violence at all. No racism, no misogyny, no exploitation of women and children, no evil at all. How many of you want to live in that kind of a world? You can. If you're a follower of Jesus, one day you will. Because Yahweh is just, and this is a good thing. It's part of the good news. As it says in Amos 5 verse 24, let justice roll on like a river. That's what we can look forward to. Because forgiving is in God's DNA, Jesus takes our wickedness, rebellion and sin with him to the cross. And because he's also just, we can look forward to the day when evil is banished forever and justice flows like a never ending stream. Back to Exodus 34, verse 7, and we've reached the most unsettling part of all. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. We've just described God as forgiving by nature and not vengeful and looking for retribution, but these words seem to fly in the face of that. But we can be sure that this phrase doesn't mean exactly what it sounds like at first hearing. Because later on, in Deuteronomy 24 verse 16, Moses makes the opposite point. Parents are not to be put to death for their children, nor children put to death for their parents. Each will die for their own sin. So if it isn't saying what it looks like it's saying, what's actually going on at the end of verse seven? there are several layers of meaning firstly the sins of parents have consequences for their children's future that might be a bit uncomfortable to hear but I'm sure it's something we can all acknowledge as true another layer of meaning is that sin can be passed down from one generation to the next with examples followed and habits picked up as the saying goes the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. And a final layer of meaning is that because, as we've seen, God is innately just, he will continue to punish sin in each and every generation until it's completely gone. Just because he already held your parents to account for their gossip or idolatry or fruity language or creative tax return or whatever, doesn't mean he won't also hold you to account if you follow in their footsteps. But even in this seemingly uncomfortable ending, there is something positive to notice and hold on to. As we started looking at this verse, we heard that God maintains his love to thousands. Here at the end of the verse, we read that he punishes to the third and fourth generation now the word generation isn't actually there in the hebrew but the translators have to supply it for it to make sense in english but by that token we could supply it at the start of the verse too and proclaim that god safeguards his love for thousands of generations but punishes sin to the third or fourth generation If you imagine a balance scale with mercy on one side and justice on the other, this interpretation would suggest that God's overwhelming and abounding mercy well and truly tips the balance. As it says in James 2 verse 13, mercy triumphs over judgment. So, there's a tension between God's forgiving mercy and holy justice attention which you feel on every page of the bible if you were reading the bible for the first time as the story develops you would be asking yourself how is god going to resolve this but as every well-trained sunday school child knows when asked a question the answer is jesus as we heard earlier from john the baptist jesus is the lamb of god who takes away the sin of the world. John is using the language of the sacrificial system where when you had sinned, you would bring an animal, often a lamb, to the temple, and it would suffer and die in your place. You sin and the lamb dies. Your sin is punished, but you receive God's mercy and forgiveness. In our age of veganism and animal rights, that process sounds barbaric. But it was a temporary system and also the most wonderful visual aid pointing forward to the atoning sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. It introduced God's people to the idea that someone else can die in your place. Someone else can take the punishment for your wrongdoings. For generations, that someone else was a lamb, until Jesus made his once-for-all sacrifice of himself as the Lamb of God. The cross is the ultimate expression of God's mercy, of him forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. But it's also the ultimate expression of his justice, which does not leave the guilty unpunished. John Mark Comer puts it like this. In this moment, we see more clearly than ever before what Yahweh is like. The reconciliation of God's mercy and justice in the death of Jesus is the ultimate expression of God's character. The tension is finally resolved. It's in God's nature to show mercy and forgive, but it's also in his nature to deal with sin And these two parts of God's person seemingly at odds for so many years finally come together on the cross in beautiful harmony so in answer to the title of our talk this morning that is how Jesus demonstrates God's covenant love with regard to forgiving wickedness rebellion and sin but where does that leave us well If all that we've heard this morning is pretty new to you, or you're still thinking it all through and weighing it up, then do find someone to talk it over with after the service. Or do some more reading for yourself from the Bible, or perhaps order that book I mentioned from Amazon. But if we know God's wonderful forgiveness for ourselves, then that has to have an impact on our lives. If God is forgiving by nature, as his children, we also need to be forgiving. As the saying goes, forgiven people forgive. Is that true of us? Jesus told the parable of the unmerciful servant because he knew it's something lots of us struggle with. In the story, a servant is forgiven a staggering debt by the king, but then refuses to let off a fellow servant from a relatively insignificant debt, causing him to incur the wrath of the king after all. The meaning of Jesus' story is clear. God's forgiveness gives us a responsibility to forgive, a template for how we should live. Our slate has been wiped clean. But do we do the same for others? If we think again about that balanced scale of mercy and justice, we want it to come down on the side of mercy for us, but how often do we want it to come down on the side of justice for those who've done something to annoy, upset or hurt us? We are all broken people and we all sin but we need to ask God to help us to see others as he sees them, worthy of love, forgiveness, mercy, and patience. Let's ask God to show us who we need to forgive and how we can forgive them. Jesus demonstrated God's covenant love most supremely on the cross as he took our sins on himself, fulfilling God's holy justice and he obtained for us God's complete forgiveness, the outpouring of his awesome mercy. May we know and respond in faith to that wonderful truth, but then also allow it to transform us into forgiving, merciful people who God can use to bring more of his love and justice into this world. Amen.